Good morning. My name is Sean. I'm the pastor here at Grace Church, and I'm glad you guys are, are with us today. Uh, about a month ago, uh, we started a series, and the first chapter that we read in that series uh, was Ephesians chapter 4, and it says that uh, it gives my job description as a pastor. It says that my job as a pastor is to equip those who are followers of Jesus uh, to do the work of the ministry, and then it describes what that looks like, the ministry, the calling that God has put uh, those of us who are followers of Jesus on. And uh, at the end of that chapter, it says that our job as pastors is to help you uh, love people well, to serve people well. And when we do those two things really well, we all begin to grow uh, together and uh, we, we grow personally. And uh, we grow even in the number of people who are, who are turning from sin and selfishness to begin fo- following Jesus. So we started a three-week series on uh, the indifferent environments that Grace Church has come up with to help you grow. And then last week, we transitioned from that grow part to the, to the serve part, and we said that Jesus was the best example that we could come up with of what service looks like. And if anybody expected or had a right to expect to be served, it was Jesus. But then he said himself that I did not come to be served, but to serve others. And in Mark chapter 10, I believe it's verse 35, uh, Jesus, the, the Bible says that God measures greatness not by the number of people who are under you in authority, but the number of people you voluntarily are willing to place above you, right? The number of people that you're willing to serve. So those who serve more are, are greater, and, and leadership is for the purpose of those uh, that, that, you, that you influence. It's not for your glory. It's not for your good. It, it's for their good. And so we ended last week by saying this week we would start looking at the first of three different environments in which we're to serve well. And the first environment is, is families. That's what we're talking about today. Uh, next is those who are followers of Jesus with us who are followers of Jesus. And then those, the, the third week from now, or two weeks from now, we'll be wrapping up this part of the series on, on how to serve those who are, are distant from God. Um, all of us have a family. You may not like the family you've got, but you've got a family right? Some of us knew our parents. Some of us did not. Uh, there, are, there are adopted people. Uh, even on our church staff, there are blended families. There are single parents. Uh, there are uh, uh, grandparents who've raised kids. I mean, it's, all of our families look completely different. Now, I, I happen to have uh, grown up in a family that I, I love. Uh, my dad grew up in a family that he loved. My mom grew up in a family that was completely broken and dysfunctional. And my mom, to me, is living proof that you could come from a life of living hell and still have and give your children a great, a great family experience, that you're not doomed to repeat the mistakes of your parents, that just if you, if you had a horrible father, doesn't mean you're going to be a horrible father. If you had a horrible mom or, or you, whatever, just we're not, we're not doomed to repeat it. Um, now, I, I, my, we grew up going, going camping as a family. Uh, my dad liked tent camping. We all went tent camping. Uh, Mom liked it because it was, the, it was for a whole week. She didn't have to do... The deal was, my mom didn't really like camping. <laughs> my mom liked my dad working his butt off and her doing nothing for seven days, which was like, dad said, if you go camping, I'll do everything. And she's like, all right, if you keep that promise, I'll go with you. So we went to the... Um, uh, Jellystone Campground, the Yogi Bear Campground, and, and I don't know, they ha- I, don't, I don't think they have those. I think they've all been bought out by KOA campgrounds, and if you guys, camping's not a big thing in New England, but in some other part, like I, I lived in Colorado for 14 years, everybody goes camping there, 
except for me and Billy Jane and our kids. I took her tent camping twice, and our marriage almost fell apart twice. So <laughs> we moved here, and I said, hey, let's go camping. And she's like, uh, do you know me at all? So the kind of camping we do has a cabin on a lake in Maine, has electricity, running water, plumbing, a kitchen, and hot waters for the showers. I say, babe, just because you can see a tree out the window doesn't mean this is camping. What I especially love about camping, even as a child, that we get, even as, as, as different, you know, cabin campers now, like, <laughs> I'll lose my man card to even say that that's camping, you know what I'm saying? Like, we got, like, beds, and, like, there's fans, and anyway, um, what I, what I love about it, that the similarity between what we're doing with our children and what my parents did with me, is that there's no, there's no TV for a solid week. There's no internet. There's no, there's no cell phones. Not that there were internet or cell phones when I was a kid. But I'm just saying you completely unplug from the world, and it's wonderful. The first two days, the kids are all complaining, we're bored, we hate it, why can't I play my, D-? you know, my DS or, uh, you know, that, that we, we, there's no iPad games that week. I mean, we shut it all down. So the first two, weeks, first two days, they're complaining. By the third day, they're actually playing and talking to each other. It's amazing. Somebody went, oh, wouldn't that be nice? Are you going to have a conversation without somebody checking their phone? I mean, I'm as guilty about, uh, of this as anybody else in my family. It's just that by the end of that week, I say, wouldn't it be awesome if this is the way it always was? So then we make vows to each other, my wife and I. When we go home, we're going to throw out the TV, get rid of, get rid of cable, and, and uh, <laughs> she goes, do you even know me? Just kidding. Uh, but, you know, we're going to cut down on TV. We're going to do game nights. We're going to, you know, we make all these promises of what we're going to do as a family that, that we most often never, never end up doing. And, 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 and it's, it's that week away that I realize how much farther, how much more healthy my family could be from what it is. You know, uh, not, nobody has a perfect family. There's, there's definitely room for improvement. So that's, that's kind of what we want to talk about this morning. And, and, and we have different experiences with family, so I want to start with some common ground, all right, so that we can all start on the same page. Because I could talk about uh, your dad being a picture of, of God as our father, and you're like, then I don't want to do anything to do with God then, because maybe your father image has, has been tainted by the brokenness of the man that raised you. Uh, so we're not coming... F- to this conversation from the same place. So common ground's important. Number one is this. I think we can all say that none of us chose our families, right? You didn't choose your biological parents. You didn't choose whether or not they put you up for adoption or whether or not they kept you. You didn't choose the economic circumstances into which you were born. You didn't choose your family at all. That wasn't your, your choice. And when we talk, the other common ground is this, that we don't come into this conversation emotionally neutral, so when I start talking about husbands and wives and parents and children, you're not going to be hearing this cleanly. And I think it's appropriate for all of us to recognize that we come into this conversation with baggage. So when I talk about husbands or wives or parents or kids, you've got positive or negative mental images associated with each one of those labels. And so I'll say something, and you'll have a negative emotional reaction to what I'll say, and it has absolutely nothing to do with what I just said. It has everything to do with the emotional baggage that you are filtering what I just said through. 
So what I'm asking you to do is, to the best of your ability, acknowledge your, your emotional biases and try to hear the things that we look at, the things that will <laughs> hear the things you look at, hear the things I say or the scriptures that we read from as an objective of a place as possible. All right? Uh, thirdly, is that uh, all of us probably think that there's nobody in our family that is as smart as we are. Right? Or our family wouldn't be as broken as it is. If my wife was like less of a jerk and more like me, if your husband, right? If your kids, I mean, truth is, you're right most of the time. Right? I mean, if you didn't think you were right, you would change your mind. But because you haven't changed your mind, it's because you think you're right. And if everybody else agreed more with, I mean, the truth is that we feel like if everybody was just a little bit more like we were, then our family would be a little less, less broken. Now, getting ready for this weekend, I found out something I'd never considered before, and that is that there's not a single example in the entire Bible of a healthy family. Did you know that? There's not a single family in the entire Bible, not even one example where there isn't brokenness and dysfunction. And at first, and that, by the way, that's one of the reasons why I believe in the historical accuracy of the Bible, because if the Bible was made up, they wouldn't put in there, although they put in a few good examples. You know what I'm saying? They wouldn't have made up that the very first family that ever existed, the son murdered the other son. They wouldn't have put in there that the one that God called out of Mesopotamia and said, through you, all the nations of the world would be blessed. I'm going to start a new people group through you, Abraham. They wouldn't put in there that he offered his wife to another tribal chieftain because he was intimidated by that guy and thought he would try to kill him. So he said, here, she's just my sister. Take her. That's a horrible husband. I've never offered my wife to another man because I was afraid he would beat me up. Right? Holy cow! Can you imagine somebody? Abraham did that not once, but twice. Then his son Isaac grows up and did the same thing. I mean, he worked for dad. And that also tells me something else, that the, that the dysfunctions of one generation, by default setting, are likely to pass on to the next generation, and then the next one, and then the next one, and the next Not doomed to, but are likely to. You can break cycles of dysfunction, but not an accident. If your parents never resolved conflict in a healthy manner, the likelihood is that you're not good at resolving conflict in a healthy manner. Doesn't mean you never will get good at that. It's just you're not going to be naturally good at that. Now, in my family, my mom and dad did that well. So we're able to resolve conflict in a healthy fashion. Billy Jane and I don't yell and scream at each other. That's not a part of our our family, and that's not because I, I, that's no virtue on my part, it's because I was handed a good example in that area, right? So I probably take it for granted more than I should. So I, I intuitively, in that area, do well what others have to strategically or intentionally do well. Does that make sense? But then you do some things intentionally well, excuse me, intuitively well, that I have to work hard to do well. There's just no great examples but the Bible does say a lot about what the family should look like. Today's scriptures that we're going to be looking at, we're primarily going to be in, in the book of Ephesians. And the scriptures that we're going to be looking at today were written at a time 
when the only person's opinion that mattered in the family was the dad. The wife and the children were legally considered property. So when you go through the scriptures, and like the feeding of the 5,000 says that there were 5,000 men plus women and children. Women didn't have legal rights. Children didn't have any legal rights. If a dad was in debt, he could actually send his children off as indentured servants to pay off his debt. And there was nothing to stop a dad from doing that. I mean, there were no legal rights at, at all. So when we look at the scriptures that we're looking at today, it would have been interpreted through shocked emotional They were emotionally shocked to hear what they were saying because he talks to women. And he tells it, by the way, anywhere throughout the last 2,000 years of history where Christianity begins to thrive, so do women's rights. That's true. Look at it. As Christianity begins to develop in a community, women's rights begin to be elevated. Well, that's biblical. In Ephesians chapter 3, Paul's writing this book. He's toward the end of his life. He's in prison when he writes this letter. And he spends, it's got six chapters in this book. He spends the first three chapters saying, this is what it looks like to be in relationship with God. This is what your relationship with God means. This is the benefit, this is, this is tangibly how it impacts you. Then he spends the last three chapters saying, this is how your relationship with Jesus should impact the way you live in a broken down world. He makes this transition in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. We're going to read it. Now all glory to God who is able through his mighty power at work within us to accomplish infinitely more than we ask or think. Glory to him in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Now I want to go back to the beginning of that verse because I read it so quickly and he had like lots of religious phrases in there that we kind of mentally turn it off a little bit. But here's what he says. Now all glory to God, verse 20, who is able through his mighty power at work, where? For those of us who are in relationship with Jesus, God says, glory goes to me for what I'm about to do because it is my mighty power at work within you to help you reach this ideal. You're not on your own. My power, for those of you who've turned from disobedience to God and selfishness towards others, that's sin, to to call on Jesus for forgiveness, committing yourself to follow him with the rest of your life, I will move into your life and begin helping you work out more, infinitely more, than you ever thought I could do with you. Some of us are at a place with our family where we've given up on our marriage. You've given up on reconciling with your brother. You've given up on your kids who've grown up and walked away from God. And what he's saying right here is, I have the ability to do infinitely more in you, in the lives of others, than you even dared to ask me. Chapter 4. Therefore, I, a prisoner for serving the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling, for you have been called by God. And that's the choice everybody here who's a follower of Jesus has. You choose whether or not you're going to live your life in a way that is worthy of what God has done on your behalf. Or don't. 
God doesn't make you follow his word. I'm not going to make you follow his word. Jesus allowed people to walk away from him and reject him so we can let you walk away from Jesus and reject him. He could love those who did not love him so we can love those who do not love him. Are you with me? This is a judgment-free zone. But what I need to do is I need to be faithful to the Bible. If the Bible says this is the ideal of what a family should look like, then I'm going to present the ideal, knowing that there's not even a family in the Bible that was able to live that ideal consistently. And what I love is that every time in the Bible somebody was not able to live up to that ideal, they were offered not condemnation, not judgment, but forgiveness. That didn't mean that they gave up on the ideal. It just meant that they went back to it. Are you with me? So he doesn't give this ideal to make any of us feel like pieces of trash. He gives us this ideal because he says, this is the way that I intended it to work. You can either choose to live worthy of the calling, what I'm trying to do in your life, or don't. You do it your way, then you're on your own. Don't blame God for the consequences. But if he says you do it my way, then you're going to see me do in you and through you more than you ever even dreamed. So he gets to relationships here at the end of chapter 5. And in chapter 5, verse 21, is where we're going to start. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, he says this, And further, submit to one another, because he's he's talking about uh, living and light and morality and everything in the first part of chapter 5, and then and, and personal purity and holiness, and then he transitions to our relationships with other people. And he says, in your relationships with other people, here's what I need you to know right off the bat, verse 21, and further, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So who am I to submit, excuse me, out of reverence for who am I to submit to other people? Jesus. I'm to submit to other people out of reverence for Jesus, not out of reverence for them. Because the truth is, there are people that God's going to call me to submit to that don't deserve my submission. That don't deserve my, my, my respect. But I'm to respect them not because they're worthy of respect. I'm to defer to them not because they're worthy of being deferred to. I'm to defer to them out of respect for Jesus who deferred to who? who deferred to me, who gave up his rights to give me what I needed so I can give up my rights to give you what you needed. Did I deserve what Jesus did for me, yes or no? Do others have to deserve then what I'm called to do for them? Now you say no, but we haven't gotten to the really difficult part yet. Your husband, your wife, your parents, your kids. And so he calls us to submit in six different relationships. The first four have to do with family, so those will be the four that we look at. Now, submission has a bad connotation in our culture. I can't think of a place or a phrase. In fact, I looked up phrases with the word submission in it. Pulled up a whole list of phrases. Some of them were very inappropriate. None of them were good. None of them had a positive connotation at all. We've heard of put them in a submission hold. If you watch UFC, how many guys watch UFC? Raise your hand. Ultimate fighting. All right, if you, Jesus watches that. That's how awesome that is, by the way. I just thought I'd throw that out there. 
But if you put somebody into a submission hold, what that means is you got them in a leg bar, an arm bar, something, a bar bar. I don't know, whatever. I don't, obviously, I don't, I don't, I don't fight. I just hang out with people who do. So I don't get, anyway. Uh, but being put into submission is a bad thing. That means that you lose everything. They win everything. You tap out. You're about to get your arm broke. Submission will beat you into submission. You ever heard that phrase? I'll beat you into submission. That's not, that's not good to be beat into submission. Um, uh, bring, is to bring somebody into submission or force them into submission. All of the phrases in our culture that have to do with submission, every single one of them are negative. Not a single one of them are positive. But that's not the case in the Bible. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 16, Paul is talking to a church in Greece, and he refers to the very first Greek family that ever turned from sin to begin following Jesus. <clears throat> the dad's name in that family was Stephanus, and he refers to Stephanus to the rest of the churches in Greece and says, now listen, I want you to know that Stephanus was the very first Greek person to turn to, to, from sin to follow Jesus, he and his entire household have dedicated the rest of their lives to serving the mission of God in this world and his people. So submit to them when you meet them. Does that mean that Stephanus is the boss of every church in Greece? No. It just means when this guy shows up, he's going to show up and be a huge asset to your church family. If he shows up at your church... That's a great thing. And he and his whole family are going to want to serve you guys. Don't make it difficult for them. Give them whatever resources are necessary so they can do in your church family what God's calling them to do. And you're going to love the blessing that they are to you. That's the spirit in which he writes it. All it means is allow them to do what God's calling them to do without giving them a hassle over it. That's what submission is. I submit to Greg and Courtney... In the worship time, I don't choose the music. I don't choose the, 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 the types of music. I don't choose the songs, the lighting. I don't know anything about that. So I defer to them. I haven't lost any credibility as a leader to do that. That doesn't threaten my identity for Greg or Courtney to say, hey, I don't think we should do that. I'm actually a moron if I don't consider what they're saying. You know why? That's their area of giftedness. That's what they've been called to do. I am to submit to them in that area. It is to my benefit that I allow them to do what they're great at, what they've been called to do. I would be emotionally insecure to be threatened by allowing somebody else to lead me. You know people at work who won't let anybody tell them what to do? Are they emotionally healthy? Are they emotionally unhealthy? They're unhealthy people. They're insecure people. They're not confident in their own identity. When somebody else has a better idea, they feel threatened because they are emotionally weak. Are you with me? It actually takes a person who's pretty secure to choose to submit to somebody else's influence. I'm deferring. I'm allowing them to influence me. It makes me a better leader that I allow Courtney and Greg to lead me. Does that make sense? You're a better boss if you will allow those who work under you, who know more than you, to influence you. Does that make sense? Some of you guys are miserable because you know more than your bosses. 
and they are so insecure that they won't take any of your great ideas. Can I get it? Amen. Amen. <laughs> First Peter chapter 5, verse 5, Paul says to the younger men in the church, some of whom no doubt had families, to submit to the older men in the church. That did not mean that the older men were the bosses of the younger men and their new families. It just says, if they've got something to add because they're older men than you, you're a moron not to at least consider what they're saying. So allow these older guys to mentor you. That's all they're saying. I don't lose my identity as a husband. You wouldn't lose your identity as a wife to be mentored by an older lady who knew a little bit more, or at least had more experience at this than you. Submission is allowing people to be above me. And that's what Jesus said determines whether or not he will say that you are great. It's not the number of people that I make submit to me. It's the number of people whose needs I'm willing to submit to. That's what determines greatness. We talked about that last week. We're to do this not out of reverence for them, but out of reverence for who? Jesus. So now he goes into each of the four different relationships in a family. He starts with wives, then he goes to husbands, then he goes to kids, and then he goes to parents. Now, the way that we resolve conflict is we go after the main issue first. Somebody's doing something, and they're doing a couple of other littler things. We're going to go to them and get, take, that big, take care of that big one. We go after the biggest problem first. So when we see in the scriptures that Paul talks about submitting to each other, mutual submission, each of us deferring to the other person and allowing them to be above us. And then he starts with the ladies. Emotionally, we don't come at this from a clean place. We go, oh, why are you going after the girls first? You saying they're the bigger issue? No, remember the culture in which he wrote this. Women were not talked to or addressed at all. So when Paul starts off by saying wives, it caught all the dudes' attention. Hold up. You want to say something to my wife? You tell me. I'll tell her. That's their culture. So when he starts off by saying ladies, what he did was he elevated the stature, the, 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 the stature, the stature, elevated the status. Static? That's not right. What? Status. status. Elevated the status. Well, this one ain't making it online either. <laughs> and in the service last night, I, there's a part where I say, lay your life down. I'm talking to the dudes. And I said, lay your wife down. <laughs> and I had to end the service. I never got it back. I completely lost the crowd. After that one. But when Paul addresses the women first, he elevates the status of women and says to the dudes, things are about to change around here. That's what he does. So he starts with the women, and here's what he says in verse 22. Wives, this mutual submission, here's what it looks like for you. Wives, this means that you are to submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Now remember... You are having a negative emotional reaction to that sentence because of your previous experience and because of our culture, not because of the point that he's trying to make. 
We're not coming at this objectively. We need to acknowledge that. Okay? Keep going. For a husband is the head, the lead of his wife, as Christ is the head, the lead of the church. He is the savior of his body, the church, and as the church submits to Christ, so you wives should submit to your husbands in everything. We hear that and we think, this means that I have no say. That is not what this means. Do I have a say in my relationship with Jesus, yes or no? I just allow him to take the lead. It doesn't threaten my identity. Do I have a say with Greg and, 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 and Courtney? Yes or no? But I allow them to take the lead. It doesn't stop me from being who I am. It doesn't stop my opinions. It doesn't mean my opinions don't matter or don't count. Are you with me? This doesn't threaten my identity. By the way, this isn't written to men. He isn't saying, men, your wives need to submit to you. This ain't for you at all. He's talking to ladies here. This is their prerogative. He's saying to them, allow your husband to go in front. Allow your husband to lead. Allow your husband to set the example. Allow your husband to point the way that the family needs to go. Hold up now. You're still having a negative reaction to this. But that's because you haven't heard me deal with the husbands yet. We're getting there. All right? At this point, in our culture, women are feeling threatened. At this point, in their culture, the women are feeling honored. Are you with me? So our, 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 our cultural context is having a huge influence on what we think this means. In Colossians chapter 3, he says to submit to your husband as is fitting for those who belong to Jesus. So I need to say this. This is only for those wives who've chosen to turn from disobeying God and selfishness towards others to live worthy of the calling that God has placed on them. If you have not chosen to turn from selfishness to live fully following Jesus, this is optional for you. But for those wives in here, for those husbands in here, for those parents in here, for those children in here, who've chosen to turn from selfishness and disobedience to God to follow Jesus, this is not optional. This is what it looks like to live in reverence to Jesus. The truth is, is that 1 Peter chapter 3 says, that even if you've got a husband who's a bad example and you choose to defer to him and allow him to take the lead to set the example in the home, your tenderness and humility will change his heart and make him humble. It says you actually may win him over. Isn't that the truth? When somebody serves me, how does it make me feel toward them? Do I like them more or less? Do I care more or less about their needs? About what they're going through when they live their life selflessly? you got people who at your work are always the one who are volunteering to help you catch up on your work. What does that do to you? Make you more or less likely to submit to their needs? More. It makes you more likely to serve them in return, doesn't it? 
Because the truth is, our, the truth is, the reason why I want to live my life as an expression of my love for God is not because I'm afraid of God, but because I'm grateful to God. Because he served me when I didn't deserve it. And I know that no matter what sins I commit from this day into the day I die, I've already been free. I'm Teflon. My sin bounces. It don't stick to me because Jesus already paid the punishment for every one of my sins. That doesn't make me want to keep sinning because I recognize how much sin he's forgiven me of. I'm filled with gratitude, and it's my gratitude that makes me want to return the favor. Are you with me? That's all he's talking about is our ability to serve others moves them to want to serve and meet our needs also. Then he goes to the husbands in chapter 5, verse 25. For husbands, this means, what means? That you are to submit to other people. Here's what your submission looks like. That you are to love your wives just as Christ loved the church and he gave up his life for her. You know what this means? Husbands, she's going to allow you to lead, and you're going to lead in a way where you lay your life down at her disposal. Are you with me? She's going to allow you to jump on the hand grenade. Isn't that sweet of her? She's going to allow you to take the bullet. She's going to allow you to put her needs first. She's going to let you set the example of humility and service for the family. She's going to allow you to point the direction in which you are most able to meet her needs. That's what it looks like. And if you think about it, it's beautiful. She is meeting his needs while he is sacrificing for her needs. And it's this beautiful picture of Jesus and his relationship with us. Where there's mutual submission and sacrifice and generosity and love and acceptance and forgiveness and healing and health. And that's what it looks like. Colossians chapter 3 says to the husbands, it's a parallel passage to this. He says, and by the way, in doing this, you are never, ever, ever to treat her. Talk to her or treat her harshly. We're going to look up the one passage of scripture outside of Ephesians. In 1 Peter chapter 3 where it says this. In 1 Peter chapter 3, he says in verse 7. In the same way, you, you husbands must give honor to your wives. Treat your wife with understanding. Here's a question. Does your wife feel honored? What does it look like to honor? You ever honored a special guest? Does your wife feel, dude, honored by you? You can't say you honor your wife if your wife doesn't feel honored by you. Treat her in an understanding way. Does she feel like you understand where she's coming from? If you're not sure, ask her. <laughs> but you probably shouldn't. On a scale of 1 to 10, how do you feel honored by me? No matter what number she gives, what if you were to say, what is one thing I could do that would make you feel more honored? Because even if it's a 3, don't you wish it was a 4? 
if it was a six, wouldn't it be awesome if you could make it a seven? Do you feel I understand you on a scale of one to ten? Ladies, ask your husband, do you feel that I respect you as my husband on a scale of one to ten? Do you feel that I allow you to lead and serve this family without giving you so much crap? Not, not, okay, that, that just added way too much. <laughs> Keep reading there. It says, uh, she may be weaker than you are physically, but she is your, I love this because you need to hear it. She is your equal partner in God's grace. In marriage, it's not 51, 49, dude to chick. It's 50-50. We're equal. We're both to submit 100% to the other person at the same time. It's just we submit in different ways. It's the same coin, but my side of the coin looks different than her side of the coin. But both of us are benefited equally. We are equal partners in this. I'm not the boss of Billy Jane, but God has called me to be a picture of Jesus in my marriage, so I am to lay down on the grenade so she can get up and walk away. Why? Because Jesus laid on the cross so we could get up and walk away. I am to give up what I want to make sure she has what she needs in the same way that Jesus gave up what he wanted, not being tortured to death, to give us what we needed his bloody death on a cross. And she is to allow me to set the example like I am to allow Jesus to set the example. An example of what? Selflessness and sacrifice. Why? So that I will be selfless and sacrifice, sacrificial in return. So that you wives can be selflessness and sacrificial towards your husbands in return. He says to the children in Ephesians chapter 6, By the way, at the end of chapter 5, he says to the husbands, now listen, you best love and serve your wife. And he says to the wives, and you need to respect your husbands and not make this difficult. How many times has your husband ever had a good idea and you're like, you man, you're always so stupid. Well, now he wants to take the grenade for you. You know what I'm saying? I mean, it's... It's, it really needs to be both at the same time because you could be serving your husband and he's not serving you back and that makes it very difficult. Or you could be sacrificing for your wife and her needs and she's not talking to you with kindness and that makes it difficult for you to want to keep serving her. Right? The truth is this really only works when both of you are all in on this. Long term. So he says to the children in chapter 6 verse 1, children obey your parents because you belong to God. Not because your parents are always right. But because you belong to God, obey your parents. And the context here, and this is a throwback to Deuteronomy chapter 6, and there's a transition point where I go from obeying to honoring. See, I don't have to do what my daddy says anymore because now I am in a different nuclear family. Right? So I'm in a different family now. But I never get to a place where I am allowed to stop honoring my parents. Do I honor them because they deserve to be honored? Did God honor me because I deserve to be honored? Doesn't matter. I honor them out of reverence for who? Jesus. Honor your parents 
for this is the right thing to do. Excuse me, obey your parents. You belong to the Lord. This is the right thing to do. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. That if you honor your father and mother, things will go well with you and you will live a long life on the earth. It's the first commandment that God gives that has a promise connected to it. Honor your parents. Be that kind of a person. And things will generally go better for your life than if you didn't. Then he says to the parents in verse 4, dads, this tells me whose responsibility is. He talks about discipline and instruction. And we defer to our wives more than we should. We like to come home and be the hero. I mean, right? Here's what he says. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger by the way you treat them. You know how I am to submit to the needs of my children? However I treat them, I am to submit to their, submit to their emotional health. I remember one time when Garrett was being mean to Lauren, I intentionally looked at him in the most evil, meanest looking face I could, I could, like I looked at him with hate because I wanted to break him and I broke him and I remember him, sorry, he crumbled, he wilted and fell to the floor because he felt hated by his dad and I won, I taught him a lesson. And risk losing him in the process. That was sin in me. If you treat your children in a way that causes them to emotionally react with anger, you've gone over the line. So there's this delicate balance between discipline and their emotional contentment. And he says, rather, bring them up with discipline and instruction that comes from the Lord. That's what it looks like. I have to discipline and instruct them. Discipline them from what? Not from embarrassing me, but from living. Listen, my kids need to know that the world doesn't revolve around them. If they're going to be healthy adults, they need to learn to submit to the needs of others and to following God. If my children don't learn to live for the glory of God and the good of others by the time they become adults, then they're doomed to repeat the mistakes of the past. I'm setting my children up for failure in their first marriage when I didn't teach my son to be selfless towards others. When there are no negative consequences for negative behavior, they become shocked that their first wife left them when they cheated on them. They thought they could do whatever they wanted and everybody around them had to take it. Where do they get that attitude? From the parents who let them do whatever they wanted and just took it. We set our children up for failure when we don't teach them there's negative consequences for bad behavior. So all I'm doing as a dad is trying to teach my children to not be selfless, selfish in their relationship with God and their relationship with others because I'm in this relationship that I've got going with Billy Jane this circle of mutual love, submission, and respect, I'm trying to bring my kids into that same circle. And I've got 18 years to do this because they're going to start their own circle. And they need to know what a good one looks like. And our default setting is to go opposite of what that looks like. I'm not to break him. I'm to mentor him. Does that make sense?
It's a beautiful circle of mutual deference, mutual yielding, tenderness, love, and honor. Now, the Bible points us to the ideal of what this looks like. It points us in the right direction. But I want you to remember that it doesn't condemn you when you fall short. So maybe you're listening to me talk about what a healthy marriage, a healthy relationship with your kids, healthy relationship with your parents looks like, and you're beating yourself up because you feel like a turd. Your marriage isn't healthy. Your relationship with your kids isn't working. You can't stand your parents, possibly. You have three options. You throw it all all together. I don't want God's way at all. I'm not even going to try it. That's your first option, and you have that option. Our number two option is to redefine the terms of all of these different positions to fit the way we like it so that we don't feel bad about not doing it God's way. Or we repent. We turn from doing it the way we've been doing it and begin doing it the way God asks us to. Those are our three options. So what if we stopped praying for God to bless us and to give us what we wanted and started praying for God to change us and help us want what he wanted? How would your marriage be different? How would your relationship with your kids be different? How would your relationship with your parents change next Christmas when you determined, I will show them honor even though they don't deserve it? So let me ask the four different people we address. Wives, do you show respect for your husband or disrespect? On a scale of one to ten, what number do you think he would give you if you're married? And maybe you could ask him, what is one thing I can do that would make you feel more respected by me as your wife. Husbands, on a scale of one to 10, how honored does your wife feel by you? How selfless does she feel you treat her? On a scale of one to 10. And what if you were to ask her, what is one thing I could do that would make you feel more honored by me? Kids, do you give your parents a hard time about every single thing they ask you to do? Parents, do you emotionally abuse your kids? The way you talk, the way you discipline? Are you even disciplining at all? Is your family out of control? What needs to change? What if we were able to change the culture of our family from what it is right now to what it could be. The truth is, when things get unhealthy, I want to stop contributing. I'm done serving you guys because nobody's serving me. And what I'm doing when I do that is I am pulling out, I am removing from the equation the very thing that God put in it to fix it. Me. God has put the right people in your family and you have the ability if you're a follower of Jesus, God's mighty power is at work within you to fix what's broken. But you've got to go first. 
Let's pray. God, thank you for doing for us what we did not deserve. Thank you for loving us when we were unlovely. Thank you for serving us when we're selfish. Help us out of gratitude to serve our husbands, to serve our wives, to serve our kids, to serve our parents, to honor them, to put their needs above our own. And God, if we're not in a family that looks like that, somebody has to go first. Let us become leaders in our families by noticing it and going first. Help us to ask our children to forgive us for the way that we've been talking to them or for disengaging, for giving up. Help us to ask for forgiveness from our husbands, from our wives, for the way that we've been treating them. Help us to lift their needs above our own because you lifted our needs above your own. Give us healthy, awesome families. Help us to break the patterns of dysfunction that we were handed by the families we grew up in. Help us to not settle for the way things are, but to sacrifice to help them get to where they've never been. And we ask this in your great name, Jesus. Amen.